From the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. Time in London is. Um, uh, hang on a sec. Yeah. Um, the time in London is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just let me. Uh, yeah. That's that's done. That. Yes. So um, where was I? Oh yes. Mm, the, the time in London is eight o'clock. And if I type time of day into Google, I get eleven million five hundred thousand hits in point five a second. Well, yeah, that'll do. And it's, uh, oh, it's now just about time for a nap. But first, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. Welcome to Litopia After Dark. As always, we're broadcasting live on Ustream. Join us there if you can. And don't hold back in the chat room. We've an information buffet of a show this evening. A few choice morsels to pick at and have a good chew over Country music gives us the entire history of 20th century America from the viewpoint of the common man and woman. Multitasking is a very 1990s phenomenon, but isn't it really just licensed attention deficit disorder? Google. Convenient, yes. What the internet was made for, possibly. But according to one writer, Google makes us lazy and stupid. Hmm... And two new features this week, the slight item of the week. Uh, I can't tell you too much about it now because um, there may not be enough left to talk about later. And we'll also be checking out our panellists' own favourite links of the week. Here tonight to help me are, from Fort Lauderdale, Venice of America, we have writer and leading lawyer Donna Borman. Donna's first book is a writer's guide to the courtroom. That's Quill the Lawyers, due to be published later this year. She's also working on several young adult writing projects. From the Isle of Man, writer, journalist, man of letters, and Latopia's newly appointed news officer, if you've got any, give it to him, John Quirk. And from England's West Country, our very own deliciously piquant bottle of scrumpy, or perhaps should that be baby sham, Dave Bartram. Dave, what's your musical taste? Do you like country? Does it have any greater meaning for you? Uh, oh, you, you couldn't count the number of times I roared down the motorway listening to Redneck Woman. You know, it's, uh. It fills me with joy. <laughs> yeah, it's a cultural artifact, isn't it, really? Donna, do you multi-skill regularly? Well, I'm a mom who also has a full-time law practice. I knew you going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> of course I do. Yeah, okay. yeah fair enough. Well, we'll get on to that. And John, Google. Do you think it's better than looking it up in a book? Not at all. There's something reassuringly frustrating and time-consuming in looking for something in a book. Well, we'll debate that in a few minutes. Um, Sing Me Back Home, a new book written by Dana Jennings, states, If you want to understand the whole United States of America in the 20th century, you need to understand country music and the working people who live their lives by it. History, official history, is largely controlled by the rulers of a nation, aristocracy, government, and it's passed down through official records and books. But the history, the true history, the emotional history of the people of country is recorded in stories and song, being retold and sung through generations. And In a thoughtful review <clears throat> um, of Dana Jennings' new book, 
Jonathan Yardley writes this week in the Washington Post. This is how he begins his piece. Daniel Jennings was born in the fall of 1957 to 17-year-old parents who'd married only eight days earlier. The first thing they bought of any consequence was a grey and white Sylvania record player on which they listened to songs from, quote, a squat, glistering stack of 45 RPM records and the two long-playing albums they owned, Rock and Rolling with Fats Domino and Johnny Cash with his hot and blue guitar. These albums, he says, became my nursery rhymes. And if you're thinking this took place in Tennessee or Mississippi, says Jonathan Yardley, think again. Jennings was actually born in rural New Hampshire. The myth, Jennings says, is that country music is purely a white rural and southern art, whereas the reality is that country musicians come from all over. Country music for decades was poor people music, he says, made by poor people and bought by poor people. It sprang from the heart and the gut, and like R&B and soul, it was a music of exile, meant to make being banished to the margins, if not a matter of pride, then at least more tolerable. And describing his family, he writes, his was a family of mangy foxes, a sly, shifty and shiftless lot who, when faced with authority, licked its shiny boots. We had adulterers, drunks, glue sniffers, wife beaters, husband beaters and child abusers, pyros, nymphos and card cheats, smugglers and folks who were always sticking their cold, bony hands where they didn't belong. Well, that certainly isn't Nashville, is it? Uh, Does this resonate at all with with you, Donna, as a fellow American? I don't know. I I, I like country music okay i guess it's not really my thing but um i don't know that it's really um reflective of our national history i think some music is is reflective of of a history but um i'd like to know what are you drinking with me jesus or did i shave my legs for this have anything to do with history (laughs) well that's the the big question tonight of course did we shave our legs for this but it's the authentic voice really of the people isn't it i mean originally at least and in, in Britain, I mean, I suppose, what, what have we got left now? We've got a bit of uh, folksy, folk dancing, museum-y type stuff. Uh, it's a preserve of academics, really, and accountants pretending to be Morris dancers, isn't it? Don't yes, you? Morris dancing is not a bad thing. Running about with bells jingling on your trousers. It's got to be good. I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? It's, I think English folk music was reflective of English history up to about 1770, wasn't it, I suppose? Really, and then and it just be- stopped, you think? I think it, it's endlessly recycled. I don't know. I suppose there, there is a kind of um, kind of the Fairport conventions of this world, yeah. and there's more up to, upbeat kind of folk stuff. But it it's very much on the margins. Whereas country in America is is, is a mainstream thing, isn't it? Mm. it it's it's the um, what would you call it? it? It's the the minority that actually appeals to a majority. Uh, it's actually I was told I don't know whether it's true or not. The most popular musical form in uh, Jamaica. Really. I don't know whether that's true, whether somebody's winding me up or not. But I have to say, when, when we worked in Seychelles, it was hugely popular. Hmm. Yeah. God knows why. Well, it's universally no, no accessible. Musicians. It's universally yeah, accessible th- music, isn't it? And it talks about, you know, problems that ordinary people have. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's, there's a big thematic thing going on there, isn't there? It's, um, you know, the number of times I, I've, I've thought about... Um, you know, somebody living in a trailer park somewhere and the pickup doesn't work and the dog's died. It, it's, I've reflected on that and it's meant a lot to me. <laughs> Clever Selt says in the uh, the chat room, my favourite country song... <laughs> this is great. My favourite country song, Drop Kick Me Jesus Through the Goalposts of Life. And I'm sure that's real. Is it touching there for you, John? <laughs> it certainly does. Donna, can I just ask, is there a difference between country 
and country and western? I don't think so. I'm not an expert by any means. Um, well, a, a country and western, I, I, I think, is what you'll hear the radio stations called that that do kind of both. But um, country is probably more straight, like Patsy Cline and that genre. Western, yeah. uh, maybe so you more. Say, you say you're, you're no expert on this, on this, but you know, you sound <laughs> you sound very erudite on it. I mean, I you know, we can't see you, of course, but I can just picture you in that sort of spangly jacket and the whole the whole the whole works actually. You've got, you've got the right voice for it. Well, I probably do dress more like a country singer than anything well, else. I mean, right now, for instance, my jeans have a snake print on them and well, my shirt is a glittery silver. So yeah, maybe that's the South Florida influence, though. John, do you feel that country in the, in the UK does does anything to you at all? It's, it brought me um, immense pain and suffering when I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> my, 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 my father is is an absolute avid country western fan. Ah. Loves Jim Reeves, loves... Patsy Klein, Dolly Parton. Uh, no, that's Box very interesting, Willie. actually, because that, what you're talking about, basically, American culture, aren't you? I mean, you're talking mm. about American country, but um, what, what I meant to say was, um, you know, the sort of the British side of things. I mean, was that ever a factor when you were growing up? It was always a factor because it was never off in the house. It used to torment me with it. Um, <laughs> it really was. This is bringing back bad memories. Yeah, no, he he, he just loved it. Um, from when he remember, even when my dad was sort of in his teens, early twenties. So you're not you're not partial he, to a bit of Morris dancing oh, and wild funk. God, no, no, no. no. Oh. I've mellowed a bit as I've got older and I got out of the house, but mm. uh, it still haunts me. It is hard to beat Patsy Cline. I, I love Patsy Cline. <laughs> I'd like to beat Patsy Cline. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably a song about that already out there. <laughs> probably in, in the nice UK. Drink drink, I yeah. mean, it's become an academic discipline in the UK, and I suppose really that's the kiss of death for anything, isn't it? As opposed to an academic <laughs> indiscipline, I suppose, <laughs> which is possibly even worse. Oh yes, good. Um, multitasking. Multitasking is a term derived from computing in the early to mid-1980s and applied to humans in the late 1990s. In an article for the New Atlantis, senior editor and fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Centre, Christine Rosen explores the subject and its possible negative effects. Wikipedia, if you want to uh, check out uh, multitasking there, states that multitasking has been criticised as a hindrance to completing tasks, and it quotes Timothy Ferris's argument that one should rarely multitask and should instead devote full attention to completing a very small set of defined goals. And Christine Rosen goes on to write, and this is how she begins her piece, which is well worth reading. Of course, all the, um, the news items we mention are scrupulously linked through on the uh, show notes which you can find on the podcast website, podcast.litopia.com. Um, so you can read the entire article. This, this is how she begins. In one of the many letters he wrote to his son in the 1740s, Lord Chesterfield offered the following advice. There is time enough for everything in the course of the day, if you do but one thing at once. But there is not time enough in the year if you will do two things at a time. To Chesterfield, this is what this is Christine <clears throat> writing now. To Chesterfield, singular focus was not merely a practical way to structure one's time; it was a mark of intelligence. Here, quite she uh, quotes him again. This steady and undissipated attention to one subject is a sure mark of a superior genius. Chesterfield writes, as hurry, bustle, and agitation are the never-failing symptoms of a weak and frivolous mind. Well, of course, in the nineties, we all got sold on this idea of multitasking, and a lot of devices were sold to um, help us multitask better, faster, more effectively. 
But guess what? Now the pendulum is swinging the other way. And Christine points out in her piece, uh, she quotes Dr. Edward Hallowell, a Massachusetts-based psychiatrist who specialises in the treatment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And he's written a book with a self-explanatory title, Crazy Busy. Um, he's been offering therapies to combat extreme multitasking for years. In his, in his book, he calls multitasking, quote, a mythical activity in which people believe they can perform two or more tasks simultaneously. In a 2005 article, he describes a new condition, attention deficit trait, which he claims is rampant in the business world. ADT is, quote, purely a response to the hyperkinetic environment in which we live, writes Hallowell, and its hallmark symptoms mimic those of ADD. Don't get lost with all the initials here. Um, Christine quotes him as saying, Never in history has the human brain been asked to track so many data points, Hallowell argues. And this challenge, quote, can be controlled only by creatively engineering one's environment and one's emotional and physical health. Limiting multitasking is essential. And, of course, best-selling business advice author Timothy Ferris also extols the virtues of single-tasking in his book The Four-Hour Work Week, which I think is roaring through the charts at the moment. Um, she also quotes uh, Russell Poldrack, a psychology professor at University of California, saying, uh, we have to be aware that there is a cost to the way that our society is changing, that humans are not built to work this way. We're really built to focus and when we sort of force ourselves to multitask, we're driving ourselves to perhaps to be less efficient in the long run, even though it sometimes feels like we're being more efficient. And then she um, also goes on to just mention a, a survey recently done amongst young people, perhaps the most disturbing stuff here. Um, the picture that emerges, she says, of these pubescent multitasking mavens, because they're all very good at doing this these days, watching television, doing the internet, and all other kinds of stuff. Um, the picture that emerges is of a generation of great technical facility and intelligence, but of extreme impatience, unsatisfied with slowness and uncomfortable with silence. And she says... Um, well, she quotes a neurologist as saying, I think this generation of kids, is, uh, kids are, are guinea pigs. Um, and they may well become adults who engage in very quick but very shallow thinking. So I guess we should turn to you first, Donna, because multitasking is traditionally, I suppose, something we're told that women can do much better than men. I mean, have we been sold a pop here? Oh, uh, what? I was uh, checking my email. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> Let me just repeat what I've been saying. <laughs> no, um, here's, no, anything but you know, I, I was thinking about uh, this because uh, I was thinking about what my morning looks like compared to my husband's. And here's my morning the first hour. Awake the girls, get them breakfast, make sure the dog has her food and water, give the dog a pill, uh, check to see what Michigas has happened on Latopia since I went to bed, drink lots of coffee, make breakfast, check email while I'm eating and listening to Latopia daily. Um, uh, then I have to help the girls to get ready and deal with whatever notes they, they forgot to give me all week. It, it, you know, there's, there's just a whole load of things that I do. And here's my husband's first hour. He eats breakfast. He reads the paper, he showers, and he takes the girls to camp. Well, because everything else um, is, is done. There's nothing else. You've <laughs> left him nothing else to do. <laughs> um, so I think that, but but uh, but I don't necessarily think that there's a, a a gender difference because I know plenty of men who multitask. Peter, I know you're guilty of that. Um, oh. So maybe it's more of a personality thing than than a uh, gender thing. Mm. Okay. Don't, don't I? Go on. So if, if, I, if I pay for your flights, could you come over to the Isle of Man and have a word with my wife? 
<laughs> about what she should be doing in the morning. <laughs> well, you know, maybe things will settle down once I have a couple of books under my belt and, uh, and I feel uh, a little less time pressured. But uh, right now I do a lot of things all at once. <laughs> um, I, think that, I think there's something to it to a degree I mean I'm, I'm pretty much like Donna in the morning I run around like an idiot getting everything ready and, and Emma stays in bed till you know it's 10 minutes before she has to get up and, and get in the car but at the same time when it comes to writing mm. uh, yeah. I, I, I must be what Chesterfield describes as a superior genius because uh, yes. um, <laughs> I, I, I think I'm that's quite, a I'm safe quite, assumption I'm quite chuffed at that uh, yeah. description because um, it is it's one at a time Yeah, I've got several things on the go but I can't dip in and out of them on a daily basis I, I think, need to focus. yeah, I think there's, there's a difference, isn't it? I mean, I know a number of authors do have different projects on the go, but that's not really multitasking, is it? It's, no. you know, giving no. your attention to one thing after another, and a little bit of variety is good there. I mean, Dave, let's get your wisdom on this. Oh, um, it's a crock, multitasking. It just means <laughs> doing loads of stuff not very well. <laughs> if you do one thing at a time, you do it better. You know, yeah, yeah. it's as simple as that. And it, it, I don't know whether it, it, there's a gender divide, but there's certainly a cultural divide. If you go back to, to the cave where I've taken us once before, uh, or now and again, um, mm-hmm. if you're out hunting woolly mammoths, you've got to stay focused, haven't you, really? You know, <laughs> Very interesting, this, because, you know, for years and years and years, we've been made to feel deficient, really, if we can't do this thing. And, I mean, I, even, you know, even, even Donna, right, sort of, you know, ultra-efficient person, probably accomplishes more in the first two hours of the day than, than most of us do in the entire day. Um, but, you know, is that really multitasking? Or isn't it just doing things really quickly? Well, I think I do skip from one thing to another. Obviously, I'm not typing while I'm cooking breakfast or whatever. But um, I, I tend to switch from one thing to another really fast. Maybe it's just being an American and having a short attention span. Mm. Um, we, we don't tend to have a lot of patience over here. I remember when I uh, did visit England, my husband and I were really frustrated with the concept, concept of queuing everywhere. We couldn't stand the fact that you have to wait in line. Oh, you, you every- were one of those pushy Americans were you well because we we don't like waiting for stuff here and and i don't have any patience well, for did it, you just so. sort of push yourself to the front of the bus queue no we waited but we grumbled about it <laughs> is that george bush's excuse with the oil in iraq <laughs> oh i just couldn't wait no 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 no, 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 uh, no not gonna hold donna responsible for that for heaven's sake well just let's just move this discussion on not leaving it we're just sort of developing a little bit further because again also this week um very interesting a very interesting piece in uh, atlantic monthly uh, july august issue by nicholas carr um he finds that his use of the internet and google his use of snippets of information means that he can no longer concentrate or has the will to read lengthy passages of prose. Google, he says, has made us stupid. Reading is not instinctive, says Marianne Wolfe, a developmental uh, psychiatrist at Tufts University. It's not etched into our genes, the way speech is. We have to teach our minds how to translate symbolic characters we see into language we understand. So, is the internet responsible for stopping us doing something we're not suited to anyway? Um, Well, I know that's a big leap, but really, with so much information available to us now, are we beginning the habit of just skimming for what we think we want and not spending the time reading deeper? Um, This is what she says. Uh, Sorry, this is what Nicholas Carr says um, in his, again, very long piece in uh, Atlantic Monthly, uh, Full Links 
uh, on the show notes. He starts off by talking about um, 2001 uh, Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's film, when um, Hal, the computer, is dying. He says, Dave, my mind is going. You probably remember this. It's a very famous scene. Hal says forlornly, I can feel it. I can feel it. Um, I can feel it too, says Nicholas Carr. <laughs> Over the past few years, I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neural circuitry, reprogramming the memory. My mind isn't going, so far as I can tell, but it's changing. I'm not thinking the way I used to think. I can feel it most strongly when I'm reading. Immersing myself in a book or a lengthy article used to be easy. My mind would get caught up in the narrative or the turns of the argument, and I'd spend hours strolling through long stretches of prose. That's rarely the case anymore. Now, my concentration often starts to drift off to two, three pages. I get fidgety, lose the thread, begin looking for something else to do. I feel as if I'm always dragging my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. He says he says he's not the only one. He's been speaking to other people about it. When I mention my troubles of reading to friends and acquaintances, literary types, most of them, many say they're having similar experiences. The more they use the web, the more they have to fight to stay focused on long pieces of writing. Isn't this a bit scary? And we know that the human brain, of course, is infinitely malleable. Um, are we sort of retraining ourselves to be sort of uh, uh, short-term people, impossible, uh, incapable of reading anything more than two, three pages, Dave? Uh, it could be that. It could be they're just reading crap books that don't help their attention. <laughs> That's <laughs> a possibility. Yes. No. <laughs> I've found I've got a lot pickier with, with what will you know I can engage with as, as years have gone by. You're, you're less prepared to spend time, which is a finite... Uh, yeah, the thing well, after your all. Age, it is quite finite, isesn't it? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you, you think, well, you give something a few pages. If it really doesn't grab you, you put it down. So maybe they're just reading crap books and they need to read, read, need to read some better books. I don't know. There is just an article in The Australian about how computers are actually causing our brains to rewire. Ah. Apparently, when we spend hours in front of the computer screens and TVs, we churn out excessive amounts of dopamine, and apparently that suppresses more sophisticated thinking, and it's addictive. So the scientist that was quoted apparently thinks we're going to eventually change, change human behaviors and thought patterns as drastically as when we changed over from Neanderthals. Uh. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. We're, we're actually evolving by, by this constant exposure. So it's, it's back to a notepad yeah, we, and pen then. Well, we didn't actually evolve from Neanderthals, did we? They were a separate species with a big hindbrain, and mm. Homo sapiens has a large forebrain. Mm. Uh, and interesting, if you have a Neanderthal recessive, because there was some interbreeding, you have a long second toe. So check your feet, folks. You may be... Uh uh -oh. That's maybe halfway there. That's what, what some people call a Greek foot, isn't it? I, I believe so. Mm, I've got that. We could communicate through grunts if we had to. <laughs> I'd do that anyway. <laughs> this is, this out, is yeah. a very scary uh, idea that you've just raised, Donna. Um, just looking through this, um, this article, uh, they quote a 2004 interview with Newsweek. Um, Sergey Brin, one of the two co-founders, of course, of Google, an impossibly rich person, um, he said in 2004, he said, uh, certainly if you had all the world's information directly attached to your brain or an artificial brain that was smarter than your brain, you'd be better off. So is this what's going to happen to Google? Is this what they're trying to do? Connect us up to the World Wide Web? I think it's inevitable. I mean, there's been enough SF about it, hasn't there? Yeah, there has and been. 
And I, th- I, th- I think it's inevitable. So we, Sooner or later, there'll be because they're already talking about mobile phones in clothes and things like that. Yeah. And you get people being microchipped. And there was that scientist a few years ago who implanted a chip in his arm so that doors would open automatically for him, and the building would say "Good morning, Professor So and So," and all of those kinds of things. So it, it's it's a small step, isn't it? And but you know, somebody was saying earlier on in Litopia they have a um, you know one of these uh, BT kind of uh, repositories of all your data and so on. Before long, we'll be dumping our memories somewhere so we don't have to worry about them and retrieving them so we've got more space for Google and yeah, television. I remember where you put your memory. <laughs> Have a mnemonic. I had, I had a great lecture once when I was training to be a teacher where this guy was banging on about uh, mnemonics, he said, and I just thought of a fantastic mnemonic but I've forgotten it for the moment. <laughs> what's, it gonna mean, what's it going to mean, Don, for our society and... 10 years, 20 years' time, if there are no deep thinkers left. I mean, first of all, I don't know if you accept the premise that we, we're becoming less and less capable of reading longer books, but there are going to be no deep thinkers left, if that's true. It's going to make for a more I, pliant, sort of malleable society, isn't it? No, I don't, I don't, think, I don't think so at all. Um, no, not at all. I, I don't have any problems uh, concentrating on long pieces of work. Um, I think... Um, Eve on, on, on US stream says there that she, she can't read long articles and passages on the computer, but it hasn't changed my ability to resolve a good book, and I think that's, that's how I feel. Now, that's interesting, because I, I do feel like that too, actually. I, um, you know, I, I, I'm sometimes rather guilty, actually, about um, printing out pages and pages and pages, but if I want to make any intelligent comments on someone's manuscript, I have to print it out. There's, no, there's no, yeah. no two ways around that. I've got to print it out. I've got to have it in paper. I've got to have it in front of me. I've got to be able to write on yeah, it. Yeah, I do something similar. I get a, uh, I get a stone tablet out and chip it away for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me feel much better. I can read that so much better. I, I, don't, I don't know what to think about this, really. I mean, I don't know if our attention spans are getting shorter or, or, or not. I mean, I, I can see both sides of the argument. And certainly when, you know, advising people to write certain types of non-fiction books, and I've done it myself in, in years gone by, um, you know, you are looking increasingly at writing small, um, accessible little capsules of information, much in the same mm-hmm. way as magazines structure there. You know, their, it their seems pieces. to me books are getting longer, though, aren't they? Uh, and it used to be that, for instance, in, in children's books, they'd give you word guidelines of maybe 40-some thousand as, as your max, and now we're talking 50, 60, 70, 80,000 words. Mm. Yeah. They're probably smaller words. <laughs> But taking it back to the original kind of multitasking thing, I've been thinking about it, to be serious for a moment, I think multitasking is fine for very short periods of time. It's quite possible to sustain your attention on a number of things simultaneously for a short period of time, but you cannot do anything of quality by sustaining multitasking over more than a fairly short period of time, I would have thought. If you're going to do something properly, you have to spend time on that thing alone. Hmm. And I think it's the same with with the difference between reading a book and scanning on a computer and Google and other things. There are things where that's fine and things where it isn't fine. And it's where people exercise their judgment and intellect in deciding which kind of mode of thinking and attention giving they're going to go into. Well, this is something that we need to start to teach children, isn't it, really? Yeah, study skills and all Mm. of those kinds of things. Mm. The difference, when is it useful to skim read and scan and when is it useful to... um, to kind of really dip into something and actually unpick the bones of it. Um, Clever Selt says in the chat room, if you accept Kevin Kelly's The Long Tail, I don't think it is, I think it's Chris Anderson's Long Tail, isn't it? Idea, the internet will bring deep thinkers together. 
So we, we in the future we can all look forward to being hardwired together with people who have sort of a compatible um, intellects. Not sure if I do want to look forward to that. Jezebel says says children's attention spans um, have a lot to do with food additives. I think that's true too. And Ruby Tuesday says yes, food additives have a huge part to play in attention problems in kids. Um, Clever Salt goes on to say let's not confuse activity with performing a task. Anyone can be involved in lots of activity without actually achieving anything. Hmm. There's a fairly subtle distinction between doing a lot of things in rapid sequence and multitasking, though, isn't there? I think mm. a lot of people mm. say multitasking. What they mean is I've done a lot of things very quickly, but I've only done one thing at a time. But it feels like in memory, mm. they all kind of concatenate together and they all seem to happen at once. But mm. in reality, you dealt with one at a time. Genuine multitasking is when you're on the phone, emailing, got somebody in front of you all at the same time. Yeah. And you can do that a bit, but not very much. I'm very pleased, actually. So it's a bit of good news today, really, that, you know, that multitasking is, is uh, sort of on the way out. Because, um, you know, it's something I've never really successfully managed to do, and I've always felt inadequate. And now, ah, guess what? <laughs> I'm right. <laughs> uh, another thing, another thing, another wonderful piece in the Boston Globe um, this week was... I'll tell you when I get back from my nap. It was about napping. And they've got a wonderful, um, it's, a, it's a whole, it's a graphic actually, a huge great graphic about how to have a good nap, why napping is important. Um, they say for years, naps have gotten a bad rap, derided as a sign of laziness, weakness or senility. We are caught napping or found asleep at the switch. But lately, napping has garnered new respect. Thanks to solid scientific evidence, the midday dozing benefits both mental acuity and overall health. A slew of new studies have shown that naps boost alertness, creativity, mood and productivity in the later hours of the day. And there's all kinds of wonderful things in this graphic. You really really must go and have a look at it. Go to the um, show notes on the podcast site and there'll be a link through to it. Um, it goes on about mammals. Most mammals sleep for short periods throughout the day. It's quite normal for them. Um, it, there's a little chart, another little chart here to work out if you're a lark or if you're an owl. In other words, if uh, if you to, to determine the best time to nap, it helps to know your chronotype. In other words, are oh, you a morning person or an evening person, I think. It then goes on to give you some pretty sort of self-evident advice I'd have thought, but obviously certain people don't know how to nap. <laughs> so it, it points out ideal napping positions. Uh, it tells, it gives you very good advice. Find a safe, quiet, comfortable place. You say, I was going wrong there. I was looking for very dangerous, noisy, uncomfortable places. Um, have a have a light blanket, it says. Have a light blanket handy in case you get chilly. It's nice, cosy advice, isn't it? Um, and then it goes on to basically say that naps of any length are pretty good. 45-minute naps give you some one thing. Naps of 90 to 120 minutes, which I wouldn't have counted really as a nap, apparently are still pretty good for you because they include REM sleep and all kinds of other deep, slow wave sleep. And then it goes on to give you some nice positions and sort of the typical female napping position, which is kind of a fetal position, and the typical male napping position, which is kind of slouched all over the place, actually. Um, I don't know. Is, uh, is this is just romanticising sort of um, the middle-aged nap, do you think? Or is it something that uh, that we really ought to be doing more of? It's um, There's a science behind this, isn't it? I can't remember the name of the rhythm that it... Um, Circadian rhythms? Fits. No, it's, that's... Is it? Yes, it is, isn't it? I think um, it is, yeah. 
Yeah, um, every so ninety minutes or so, you're supposed to nap for five minutes. Really? And that's that's where the power napping thing. Comes is that polyphasic, from, polyphasic sleep? That's a bit different. Something like that. Yeah. I, I don't know, but I was I was I was told somewhere that um, if you nap regularly for a fi- about five minutes during the day. Um, you uh, you're supposed to be much more effective. I've tried like napping for three hours and then waking up for five or ten minutes <laughs> and see how that works. Um, but you get all the work done in that time, though, don't you? Well, so, I have to multitask like mad. Obviously, it's obviously, yeah. <laughs> obviously to fit. You know, cause in a working day of what nine hours, I've yeah. got to fit in three naps. I'm, I'm so. thinking about carrying a light blanket around with me just in case. You know, after reading this, this very helpful piece. Well, I had I a blanket know. when I was about six. I used to carry around everywhere. So yeah. you know, yeah. Donna, you're too busy. Do you, I mean, do you power nap, maybe? I don't even sleep at night most. <laughs> so I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I don't know. I, listen, I'd love to uh, nap. I think probably uh, I, I'm too distracted to, to nap most times. Sometimes I will actually um, crash in the afternoon on maybe a Sunday or something like that. But if I go down, I go down hard, maybe for an hour and a half or so. Mm. What about writing? Uh, can you can you write after your nap? Um, yeah, I, I think I could, um, but I usually wake up pretty groggy, so it usually takes me a while to uh, focus yeah. back on the world once I'm asleep. Yeah, and are you a lock or an owl? Definitely an owl. I'm I'm up until you know one, two in the morning, yeah. um, so probably I should be napping right about now. You ought to be actually. Yeah. Well, well you know, get get a nice blanket, choose a quiet, safe place. And um, the Boston Globe will help you do it. Oh, uh, set an alarm as well. That, that's very helpful. And if you want to be your best all day long, it says at least plan on napping. So, I don't know, planning a nap sounds a little bit... takes the joy out of it. Are you a napper, John? Oh, yes. Love me naps. Do you? I'm a, I'm, I'm a night owl, so I, I'm very rarely in bed before two o'clock. Wow. And I'm up by sort of six. So I only get sort of four hours. Night. You're a Mrs. Thatcher, aren't you? I'm a bit, a bit like Donna. Um, mm. So, yeah, so if if... if if you have a sort of ten minute nap, sort of when you come in from work, or about how does the writing the right how does the writing fit into that sort of um, um, sleep uh, pattern? The, the, the writing comes at night. Like if I wake up first uh, thing, I try I try to set my alarm for six and get up and get an hour's writing done. But with so much going on in my head about what's happening at work and and what I've got planned for the day, I can't focus. So um, I'll get in, I'll watch a bit of TV from work, and then I'll I'll sort of hit the hit the computer about sort of half nine ten hmm. and get sort of three or four hours solid work done. Mm. And, I get, I'm, I'm best at night when, it, when it's dark. I think that's very interesting because I think I think there's a sort of distinction. I, I find writers either tend to be, um, you know, morning writers, and they're getting mm. up maybe five o'clock sometimes actually, um, and you know, do two or three hours work and then perhaps go on to a day job. Or they'll they'll tend to be night owls and they'll tend to do it in the in the wee small hours. Uh, which are you, Dave? Uh, I think I'm a lark who acts like an owl, truthfully. <laughs> um, <laughs> Going back a few years, I used Isn't to get Isn't that a cuckoo? Up at, That's the definition of a cuckoo, I think. <laughs> a cuckoo of one sort or another. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I used to, many years ago, I used to write early, get up at about five and write. And um, I tend to write late now, and I think I was actually better in the mornings. It's just, it's just been a whole lifestyle thing that's kind of turned that around, so... Yeah. Well, it's I called parenthood, isn't it, actually? Yeah, that's yeah. the one. Um, yeah. But I think I, I should turn that around again, actually, because let's face it, you you know, there have been many studies that demonstrate that you're at your best in the mornings intellectually, so really one should take advantage of that and get the best out of your brain uh, when you can. 
Yeah. There's not I, that much better I, to have. I, I don't understand this, but it, it's a little disturbing. Jezebel says in the chat room just three words, or a ferret. Or a ferret. What would that be like? <laughs> a would you like a nap or maybe a ferret? <laughs> this is getting into strange territory. Um, Ruby Tuesday says, I'm asleep all morning. My eyes are open, but I'm asleep. And Clever Selt says, uh, <clears throat> kind of bring the last two perhaps opposite points together. One point of detention, that mindful uh, meditation stuff is the coolest form of napping. Absolute opposite to multitasking. And isn't it just? Good point. Um, well, that was our slight item of the week. Now we're going to move on to, um, I think, perhaps an occasional item. We'll like to do it every week, actually, if it proves popular. Um, we just want to go around our panel and um, ask them to suggest some cool links that they've found over the course of the past week or two that they would like to share with more people. Um, Dave, what's, uh, what's up for you? Uh, the coolest one I've found, it's the only one I'll mention, is I was doing a bit of research into writing for young adults, mm. and I came across this fantastic article from the New York Times called What is the Matter with the modern boy uh-huh. uh, he is less of a boy but not more of a man than his father was the reason and cure outlined by one who knows him hmm. and it was actually written in 1916 and it's got a, a very Great. scary image of this gentleman who wrote it and it is the most fantastically insightful thing about the, the psychology of uh, boys that you will ever read I think I'm just, just looking at it, it now I mean he, he, you're right he is, he is very scary actually he's uh, He's not the sort of headmaster you want to cross, really. No. But it's, it's just great stuff. He talks about the mm. kind of the inner life of the boy and the craving for adventure and how the, 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 the effect of the moving picture on him was, was, was <laughs> bad. <laughs> so they've been worrying about these things the past hundred years, haven't they? Absolutely. And I thought, yeah, it, it, it holds true now. It, they're yeah. talking about American boys, but yeah. I think it holds true anyway. I, th- I think it's an extraordinary uh, bit of research. So what and was he? Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't read this. I'm just sort of skimming it now. So what, what basically was his thesis that, um, you know, we're all going to hell in the handbasket and by, you know, 1918 or something like that, the world will come to an end? No, it, it could have been. I think his, his point was that education was failing American boys, mm. and, and I'm sure people are probably saying the same thing in America now. But what his real thesis was that <laughs> the heroes of film were too polished and too stylish and that boys shouldn't be, were being shortchanged in terms of figures to hang their dreams on. Uh, you know, they needed real people yeah. and real problems and uh. real emotions and an interest in science and engineering and technology and much more kind of down-to-earth realistic things than the pictures were giving them and I think that sounds pretty familiar to the sorts of things people say about the TV really and the does. internet now. Yeah, yeah, I, I love the, these old things. I worked out why he looks so scary actually, probably had to sit still for about half an hour for the photograph to be taken. Uh, 1916, oh no, he should have been alright. Yeah. Exposure times were well under half a second by then. Hmm. Moving pictures were around then after all. That's I true. think it's the centre part in actually, it's <laughs> <laughs> that always looks scary and he a very, very short yeah, haircut. something about party. a man with a centre parting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Donny. Looks got- like he's got hairy ears as well. <laughs> yeah, in the undertale rather than Crow Magnet. Donna, you got a link or two for us? Well, I'm going to be really tacky because uh, since uh, we've talked so many times on Latopia and uh, on the podcast about blogs, yeah. I actually started blogging, and so yeah. I plug my own blog. Yeah. It's the Right Report. The it's, Right um, Report rightreport.blogspot.com mm. and I am posting links on the uh, most recent headlines on writing and publishing news. Cool. That's very good. And um, we 
also take your RSS feed. So um, quick, quick as a trice. I'm not sure how fast <laughs> trices are, but uh, you know, at least as fast as a trice. As soon as you've posted something up there, it also will reflect in the colony too, which is rather rather smooth. We can do that for anyone's blog, and instantly you've just got to post as a little note, and it will happen. Um, that's great. That's a good link. Thank you very much, Donna. And the link will be in the show notes. Um, John, you got anything of interest for us? Yeah, there was a few weeks back. I started work on a on a sort of a, a new idea for working progress, progress, mm. and um, it featured a, a killer who's in prison, and if somebody comes to to interview him, and I realised that I knew absolutely nothing about prisons. So you committed a uh, crime. Uh, <laughs> I just had, I didn't have a clue where to start. I, I thought oh, larceny, you know, mugging that sort of thing. Yeah, did, did a bit of googling. Yeah. Came up with hmprisons.gov.uk, thinking oh, that goodness. they're not going to put anything sort of you know remotely interesting or something like that. And it's got everything you could possibly want to know about being in prison. <laughs> everything, that you, everything, but a little, everything but a little link saying, it has. I'm looking saying at it uh, now. You know, how to escape. It's, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> It's got a prison virtual tour. How to make a shiv. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And this is all from, um, it's, a, it's a bit Orwellian, actually. In the bottom, it says Ministry of Justice. And yeah, then, then it's fantastic. It, it might have sort of written is it, up there. Is there a thing about doing a kind of Playgirl Bob to pick up the soap in the shower? <laughs> <laughs> I've yet to find it, Dave, but I'll, I'll keep looking. I bet it's up there. So what is a visitor's guide? It says, ah, oh, this is nice. This, this section is lovely. Keeping in touch. With your old mates, you know. Oh, no, it's not. It's keeping touch with the outside world. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's, gosh, it is everything, like actually. It's, it's what can I take in? Blimey. How can I find my relative friend in prison? Yeah. What can I do out? Dear. This is a government website. I don't know if what's it, what's it intended to do, to sort of make prison <laughs> life feel horrible or nice. I can't work it's, it's, it. I love, the, I love the, the, the virtual tour. It's sort of, you know, it's a, virtual a little tour. map and has a, it's a little magnifying glass on it so you can uh, pluck your roots out when you're escaping. Oh, it's great. Crikey. Yeah. Is there a list of bent screws in there as well? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And, and, a going, and a going rate for paying them off, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, oh, this is, this is, for writers, yeah, probably very, very useful website, actually. Good, good research. Anything else going on, John? Um, just, just one which I, with nothing to do with writing at all. Um, it, there's there's a site uh, uh, last year I organised a, a stag do to Amsterdam for a friend of mine and um, oh. best man and there's a, there's a website which it's a bit long winded. Oh, don't just, no, don't don't but, you don't, it, don't even bother trying to read it out. Um, we'll, you know the the link will be in the show notes. Basically, it's an A to Z of yeah. um, all the breweries uh, in Holland. Good grief! And all the best pubs in Amsterdam that uh, that stock their beer. Wow, and, uh, yes. I'm looking at this. It's, it's arguably the most ugly website I've seen for months, actually. Granted, it is. It's really, and it's very old-fashioned. It's sort of all, all coded HTML. There's none of your content management systems here. Got some nice labels, very pretty labels, actually. Um, it's all in, in English. Yeah, I guess it's a pretty good research site, actually, isn't it? In fact, it goes... If you like yeah, Amsterdam. It's also got the longest homepage I've seen. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. Extraordinary. Making me thirsty, actually. Mm-hmm. Very good. wants to make sure we mention Vulpus Libris, which is an excellent site. All right, who's going to, who's going to mention that? <laughs> who's going to mention that? Yeah. I guess it's me. Okay, tell us, tell us about it. 
Well, Volpus Libris is the, the book foxes, and they do uh, excellent reviews and other book news. And um, our own Eve Harvey is one of the book foxes. She is. Yes, she is. Absolute foxy book person. Um, thank you very much. Great links tonight. I want to thank our stalwart panellists for being so wonderful, as always. Um, I've had a lot of fun tonight. I'm going to go off to Amsterdam now and have a, have a glass of beer myself and make sure I don't get caught in HM prisons on the way. Um, why don't we do it all again next week? Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night.